Welcome to the Women in Government podcast. Whether discussing important issues or policies of the day, this is a place where lawmakers and decision makers unite to get the conversation started. Vaccines are not just for children. Adults can be protected from 14 deadly diseases, including hepatitis A and B, measles, and the flu. According to the CDC, over 20 years, vaccines will prevent more than 700,000 deaths and 21 million hospitalizations. Hi, I'm Laura Blake. I'm Outreach and Development Manager for Women in Government. Thank you for listening to the latest Women in Government podcast. Today, we're talking about how you're never too old, the importance of adult vaccination. We have two guests joining us on the podcast today. Abby Bonus is the manager for Adult Vaccine Access Coalition, which represents nearly 60 diverse organizations working collectively to bring federal policy changes to increase adult immunization rates. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be on the podcast today. We also have Adrienne Casalotti, MPH, MSW. She's Chief of Government and Public Affairs at the National Association of County and City Health Officials comprised of nearly 3,000 local health departments across the United States. Their mission is to serve as a leader, partner, catalyst, and voice with local health departments. Yes, thanks for inviting us. Before we dive in, I'd like to thank everyone who's listening and remind you to please like or share our podcast. You can email us by visiting womeningovernment.org. It's been found that vaccines save lives, but only if we actually use them. Unfortunately, the numbers are not looking good. Across the board, adult vaccination rates are low and far below the Healthy People 2020 targets for five vaccine-preventable diseases, hepatitis B, HPV, flu, pneumococcal disease, and shingles. The health and medical communities are trying their best to get the averages up. There are many different types of outreach efforts going on, such as vaccination clinics in schools, immunization community outreach, and public communications. All of them are focused on the importance of getting immunized against vaccine-preventable diseases. Now, to get the conversation started, Abby, why is adult vaccination so important? Yes, of course. So we've seen the benefits of child vaccination and vaccination overall. We have a strong federal and state policy infrastructure to support this. And now there's a growing emphasis on ensuring people of all ages can share the benefit of immunization. And despite those well-known benefits, more than 50,000 adults die from vaccine-preventable diseases each year. And as you know, we're far behind our goals for the healthy people targets for almost every one of the most commonly recommended vaccines. You know, part of that is that right now adults seeking access to and coverage for vaccines encounter a confusing healthcare system. There's multiple barriers. There's a lack of information about which vaccines are recommended and when. There's financial hurdles as well as technical and logistical obstacles. So we need to change this, and that's what AVAC's trying to do here in the federal space. Our coalition represents provider groups, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, patients, public health innovators, and IIS experts, immunization information system experts. And we're all working together to raise awareness and improve access and increase utilization of vaccines among the adult population. So there are a number of people at an increased risk of developing vaccine-preventable diseases. Can you tell us who makes up the special populations of adults who need certain vaccines? 
Sure. I mean, there's a number of at-risk populations, as you know. These include older adults, people with chronic illness, pregnant populations all need to be vaccinated. And we need to underscore the need to educate these populations who are at increased risk. So, for example, people with chronic illnesses, say diabetes or heart disease, we need to help them to understand the importance of establishing vaccines as part of a routine part of preventative care. We know that currently less than half of adults get their flu shots, and so some people may choose not to get vaccinated because they might not think it will work. But for people with chronic illness and everyone else, we can reduce severity, prevent the duration and serious complications, and these can lead to heart attack and stroke for these at-risk populations. Can I add something? So I think that is completely right, but we also have to think about it in this broader space of, but actually everyone can and should be getting vaccinated each year for something. The flu vaccine is an excellent example. It is particularly necessary for certain folks who might be more at risk for some of the more severe issues with flu, but everyone is at risk for the flu. We are all at risk for being out of work for a couple of weeks, having to find alternate childcare, trying to figure out people who end up in a really severe flu season who have to be hospitalized, even if they were completely healthy before. So there is this kind of mixed space of trying to make sure that particular populations really know that they need to be vaccinated, but that doesn't mean that everyone doesn't have a role to play and a reason to hear these messages either. Thank you for pointing out the need for everybody to be vaccinated. It's certainly a very timely message given that flu season is here. As we already know from statistics, immunization rates can be a lot better. Abby, which vaccines are available for adults, and is there a recommended vaccination schedule? As you know, there's over a dozen adult vaccines, and unfortunately, many adults just lack the knowledge about which vaccines are recommended and the adult schedule. And so the schedule can be complicated because it's based on both age as well as health status. And so it's important to look to our providers and those in the community to help make recommendations to patients about which vaccines that they should get when. And as Adrian mentioned, something like the flu is annual, but other vaccines come on schedule where it may be necessary once every 10 years, or you can get them once and they'll be protected forever and ever more. And so one of the complications there is that Adults may not just see one provider. They may see many different providers, or they may not see any providers at all. So it can be hard for people to even recall what vaccines they've had or when they last had them. And that's why the education component will be so important here to help people understand the vaccine schedule. We can also be looking to things like health information technology, which can be there to help people know what to get when and help the providers have those messages and reminders to talk about with their patients. So something important to point out to our listeners is that health and wellness is governed differently from state to state. The majority of local health departments across the United States are units of local government, while others are either units of state government, governed by both state and local authorities, or more than one governance type. Now, as was mentioned at the top of the podcast, the National Association of County and City Health Officials is made up of nearly 3,000 local health departments. Adrian, can you explain to us the role local health departments play in health promotion through vaccination? 
Of course. Local health departments do so much work across the country in all communities. And depending on where you live or where you are in the other public health and healthcare systems in your area, the health department might change a little bit of what it does on a day-to-day basis. But what's really interesting is that nearly every single local health department across the country engages in immunization services, particularly for both pediatric but also adult vaccination. So vaccination is critical to our members and to public health across the lifespan. So even the handful of folks that aren't giving vaccinations into arms, they are doing other work. You'll have immunization clinics, so maybe it's a flu clinic that you have or a older adult clinic or something like that. They do a ton of community outreach and public communications through local media too. Flyering about, hey, flu season's coming up, you need to be doing this. Hey, did you know that there is a shingles vaccine? Talk to your provider about getting one, that kind of thing. Our members also work with healthcare providers, oftentimes with outreach to them about what the best practices are around not only what vaccinations are out there, but also best ways to talk to your patients and also to educate them on changes in the vaccine schedule or that kind of thing. There's one other thing is, so local health departments are these chief community health strategists, right? So they're working across all different sectors, and they're also able to kind of bring these messages outside of health and healthcare. So whether that is working with the judicial system or working with the transportation system about how do we make sure we have bus routes to the places where people need to be going to be healthy and improve their health, those types of things, they can really bring those sectors together to really have these conversations in communities. Thank you for giving such a comprehensive response to my question. Now, I know that according to the CDC, there are currently 64 funded state, local, and territorial immunization programs that include 50 states, six major cities, and eight territories, and all these work together to ensure access to vaccines. Abby, I understand additional vaccines are being developed to help meet the needs of adults. Can you talk a little bit about that? The pipeline is really exciting, and we think it will really help to save lives in the adult space. There's a number of different things being worked on that would be making improvements to existing vaccines, and those are really being developed to be more effective, particularly for older adults whose immune systems are not as strong as they age. And then there's brand new vaccines that are being worked on. Uh, There's one that will counter antimicrobial resistance, such as Cetus. There's a respiratory disorder called respiratory sinusitis virus, or RSV. Sorry if I mispronounced that. There's also the very contagious virus, norovirus, which can cause vomiting and diarrhea, and sometimes people think of it as that cruise virus. And so these are all things that could be online in the next five years or to ten years. And so the future is bright for vaccines, and we're really excited about those new adult vaccines coming in the pipeline. That's really exciting that there are so many vaccines that are coming along. I'm sure we'll all be paying attention to see when those start to get rolled out. Although vaccines are highly recommended, there are reasons why adults decide to go unvaccinated. Some don't believe the vaccines work. Some say it goes against their faith. And others worry about side effects. Abby, what are the broader consequences if people decide not to get immunized against vaccine-preventable diseases? Certainly there's medical consequences, right, getting ill, suffering from pain, disability, even death. But it's also important to protect those around you. Some may not be able to get vaccinated there, whether they're too young or they're compromised and they just can't get vaccinated themselves. So when we're thinking about immunizing, we want to be thinking 
holistically, parents and grandparents need to go get their Tdap vaccine, which will protect against whooping cough or pertussis. Tetanus diphtheria is the full name of the Tdap vaccine. For instance, whooping cough can spread really easily. It can cause severe illness and even death, and it's especially dangerous for those under six months of age who are too young to be well protected by vaccinating. So again, we want to think about vaccinating for ourselves, but also for those around us. And just to jump in as depending on who's listening to the podcast, as people who are making policy decisions, there are all of these individual level complications and consequences, but there's also broad consequences to the healthcare system as a whole. We know that we're trying to do more with less funding, and these are preventable illnesses that even if you're okay with the suffering and even if you're okay with the time off from work and that kind of thing, the costs do add up too. And so if you are running up big medical bills, that can have consequences down the road. So it's important to recognize kind of the individual and their situation as it looks in the broader societal view as well. So many great points there, Adrian. And and just on the cost one, I would just throw out some numbers. So the U.S. spends about $26.5 billion annual treating four of the major vaccine-preventable diseases for adults, and those include flu, pneumococcal, shingles, and pertussis. So you really have to think if we invest in vaccinating, we can be saving billions of dollars each year. Wow, those are some very sobering statistics. To throw out a few more, an average of 50,000 U.S. adults die from vaccine-preventable diseases each year, and millions more suffer from illnesses that are entirely preventable through vaccination. Adrian and Abby, can you both explain what can be done to increase access to adult vaccines? There's a couple buckets here, right? So there's the individual bucket and then also kind of the structural pieces. And so we know that from an individual perspective, and I think we mentioned this a little bit earlier, whether or not you know what vaccines you need, whether or not you have a healthcare provider that you go to, and if that person talks to you about these things, do you have the time to take off of work to get there, those questions? Questions about cost. There can be real barriers placed on people and also perceived barriers about what's that cost going to be to me out of pocket. And then there's some broader structural challenges too, things like laws that address whether or not we should be even capturing the information about who's getting vaccinated in the adult space. Questions about how your electronic health record talks to other providers that you may see so that you actually are getting asked the right questions and getting vaccinated on time and on schedule. And then some funding issues around does your community have the money to have those broad vaccination campaigns so that they can tell you what's going on so you know that you need to be asking your provider. Do they have a campaign around grandparents that says, hey, get your Tdap vaccination, how important this is for your new grandbabies. Those all come out of funds, and if those aren't available, then those messages might not be heard. I agree with all the things that Adrian said there, and I think these are a lot of the pieces that as a coalition that works in the federal space, AVAC's trying to think about in terms of how we can make policy change to help support those different pieces that need to get done. And just as an example, you had mentioned the financial barriers. We believe that vaccines should be equally accessible among all insured populations. And so there's already so many complications here that there's things we can do to try to improve that so that financial barriers doesn't become one of them. So I know that one of the top reasons that adults go without getting vaccinated is health insurance. People without health insurance have vaccination rates that are two to five times lower than people with health insurance for flu, shingles, HPV, and other diseases. And out-of-pocket costs also influence Medicare vaccination rates. Adrian, what are other barriers 
that exist to getting more adults vaccinated. Well, I think I talked about these a little bit before, but there are these real and perceived access barriers. So cost, yes, is a huge one. One of the things we focus a lot on as members of AVAC are trying to level the playing field around these out-of-pocket costs for vaccination. So these out-of-pocket costs can go to up to $160 for a Medicare Part D vaccine out-of-pocket. But put that in perspective of if you have a commercial insurance plan, you should be paying $0 out of pocket for all CDC recommended vaccines. If you have Medicaid, so that's the program that helps support low-income people, you might have an out-of-pocket cost that's under $5 for a vaccine, depending on what your state covers. There are some Medicare vaccines that have a $0 out-of-pocket cost because of just how they're characterized by the federal government in their Part B versus Part D silos. If you are a Medicare beneficiary, you got enough on your plate than having to figure out which part does this vaccine go in and how much is going to be the cost share. And what might happen is you don't get any of your vaccines because you're afraid that all of them are going to be super high cost. On the other hand, you might only have a patchwork because of the actual cost issues, not to mention the amount of time it takes to get to a provider and ensuring that the provider has in stock those vaccines that you're looking for. For as many barriers as there are, there's a lot of people working on trying to reduce those barriers and eliminate them to try and make this the easy choice, really helping to improve the health of the nation. And again, I agree with everything Adrian just said. I would just add, you know, for those that are listening that are of the Medicare aid, those B vaccines, B as in boy, are things like flu and pneumococcal. Hepatitis B would fall under that. The other vaccines fall under Part D generally, D as in dog. And so things like shingles, which now everybody 50 and above is recommended to get, things like Tdap, which I had mentioned earlier, that are really important not just for yourself, but to be protecting your grandbabies. Those fall under Part D. I mean, you're getting this divide within the community, and what you see is that the numbers tell that story. When you look at the rates in Medicare, we see that those B vaccines have much higher coverage rates than the D vaccines. And, of course, we started this conversation really saying how we need to improve the rates for all vaccines. But if you can have something like flu that has, for the 65 and older population, about 70% of people getting it versus shingles, which is in the low 30s, it really kind of shows that divide between what cost-sharing can do to people's access points. Thank you for touching on cost-sharing, and I really appreciate your very thorough answers on the Medicare patients. Can you explain who else faces financial barriers and how the cost impacts uptake? One population that we didn't talk about before is uninsured. So if you're uninsured, it almost is maybe even more important that you have your vaccination so you're not trying to seek medical care later for a vaccine-preventable illness. Oftentimes, those are some of the folks that are coming to the local health department, for example, or community health centers for access to vaccines. At the same time, it's the folks who, even if they have insurance, they can't get in to see their provider or the distance is too far, often coming into, into our doors. In general, the country's taken some real big steps to try and reduce barriers to vaccination. And there's also been unique opportunities through pharmacies and others who are trying to expand access points for vaccination. But it's really easy to take the access to these things for granted because not everyone is able to always afford them or access them. Thank you. According to the Adult Vaccine Access Coalition, a strong immunization infrastructure also increases and sustains vaccination rates. 
Abby, what are the components of immunization infrastructure, and how is it funded? The way I view it, our nation's immunization infrastructure is really the backbone for surveillance, reporting, response activities, and a wide variety of stakeholders across the health system participate in these response activities when needed. Vital functions include vaccine purchase, storage and handling of vaccines, safety, provider and community education and outreach, and it also includes these immunization information systems, formerly known as registries, which provide the disease surveillance and pieces and components for outbreak response. So when we kind of bucket it as immunization infrastructure, but there's so many different pieces that are a part of this. Much of the funding for our nation's immunization infrastructure comes through the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, as well as the limited budgets of state and local public health programs across the country. So one of the things that AVAC does is that we're working to support the dollars as well as the various components of immunization infrastructure. We're especially honing in on things like the immunization information systems, which we think that if we can improve monitoring of vaccine-preventable disease, it, it will really help improve vaccine coverage rates. And that can be done in real time at the population level and will help to better address the gaps in vaccination coverage. And it can help. If we get this right, if we do this, we can exchange data between the different providers. So the doctors and the pharmacists and the public health departments could all be, in a sense, through the technology world, coordinating and talking to one another. And that will be a great way to help get who's received what vaccinations when, and we can then work together to try to make sure that everyone has those. So you mentioned many different pieces of the immunization infrastructure. Can you tell us who benefits from having a strong immunization infrastructure? We all do. Seniors, adults, adolescents, and children. You can also go broader the healthcare system, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, the public health community, and that includes state local immunization program managers, preparedness officials, epidemiologists. So the answer is we all do. So as we look all across the country, disparities exist for many reasons. Abby, where are the gaps in getting people vaccinated and what disparities exist and where? We see disparities by geographic, by race and ethnicity, by socioeconomic status, and that goes across the country. And so it's one of our key priorities in everything that we're working on through the Adult Vaccine Access Coalition is how can we change this? How can we shoot for a future where no matter who you are or where you are, everybody has the chance to reach those vaccination rates along with the federal Healthy People targets. So as we know, adults are at risk of illness, hospitalization, and even death from vaccine-preventable diseases. However, many still opt out from getting life-saving medication. My next question is for both of you. What do you think is the most effective way to speak about vaccines and convey their importance to adults 19 and older? Well, the population covered in adult vaccines varies so much. So it's important to tailor the messages for those populations. You know, pregnant people might need to have particular messages around that part of what's going on with their health status. Older Americans might have a little bit different messaging. but. In general, we have some common themes that we know. So one is the most important voice is that healthcare provider in the room with them. So not only is the healthcare provider bringing it up, 
but how do they talk about vaccines? Do they talk about it as a normal course of this is just part of your health care? Is it something that's seen as optional or an additional side? So that in one-on-one interaction is critical. We know that, as was mentioned before, these diseases can have some serious consequences. And so is that adult motivated to get vaccinated to protect themselves or Maybe it's that they are really focused because they want to protect their loved ones or, you know, maybe it's a grandma who's taking care of their grandbaby and they want to make sure that they're healthy enough to keep taking care of those kids. And just to build on that, we can be looking at our providers to offer a strong recommendation because we know that people trust what they hear from their providers. And there's a whole workflow strategy that was developed by the National Vaccine Advisory Committee on the standards for adult immunization practice. And those are for every patient that comes through the door that you assess what vaccinations they've had. You make a strong recommendation of what they need. You administer that vaccine or you refer them. And then you document the vaccine that the patient may or may not have received during the office visit in the immunization information system. And so if we can just start to build in these workflow practices as regular practice, I think that's a really effective way to make sure that people are understanding what they need, right? And also it'll lead to the access point. We see more and more vaccines are becoming available for adults, particularly seniors whose immune systems are weakened by age, as was mentioned earlier. Abby, how do we reassure older Americans about the safety and effectiveness of new vaccines to encourage uptake? Vaccines go through a very rigorous process to get to the market through the FDA, and then they go through a second process with the CDC and the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practice. So they are absolutely coming to market as safe and effective. But again, I would point people back to their providers to have these conversations so that they can have their questions answered and and get that information. There's wonderful resources on the CDC around immunization, so people can go there to look for information. And CMS does have some great information as well. A lot of it links back to CDC as well. In the United States, the public health system includes a collection of schools, civic groups, doctors and hospitals, faith institutions, nonprofit organizations, elected officials, the list really goes on and on. Adrian, what role do policymakers play in promoting access to and uptake of adult vaccination? You know, sometimes I think policymakers are like, oh, I have nothing to do with this. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a public health professional. But in reality, there is a real role that policymakers play. So the way that our public health system works and our healthcare system as a whole is this partnership from the federal, state, and local level. And so as part of that partnership, decisions are being made all the time around these infrastructure questions, data collection questions, research questions, how much you're going to pay through certain insurance company questions. Those are all decision points that have a direct impact on whether or not someone at the end of the day is going to be able to get vaccinated for what they need. So as mentioned before, there are federal funds that help support vaccine infrastructure and that most of those dollars go to states. Only a few local communities are directly funded. And so when you have that system, you need all of the policymakers themselves to work together too. So local policymakers helping to inform decisions made at the state level, state level officials making sure that the money gets down into communities to really make that difference. And those programs are working on things like outreach and education. Are we going to spend money to make sure people know that 
vaccine schedule has changed, and now this population also needs to be accessing the HPV vaccine, even though we used to just think of it as more of a pediatric vaccine? Or how do you promote vaccine confidence when there's a lot of mixed messages out there that aren't evidence-based and science-based? How do we work together to correct the record and really communicate to our communities? How are we going to take our limited resources and figure out which vaccines we need to really be putting into some sort of special campaign that we're paying for and other things that are really being handled very well using the traditional private healthcare provider model? So there's lots of decisions that are made in that. And so a lot of it is just asking policymakers to really understand the value of these vaccines and in the broad scheme of all the things and all the decisions that have to be made, really prioritizing the evidence-based, relatively inexpensive innovation that can really have such great impacts in the long run. Adrian, can you tell me some of the policy challenges to improving adult vaccination? Yeah, so all that being said is there's so many opportunities, but there are definitely some challenges. So the first is piggybacking on what I just said about how funding can influence what's available in state and communities, we need the funding. So the federal funding program, it's called the 317 Vaccine Program, so not the flashiest name, up until this year had been pretty relatively flat funded for the past six years. So when you have that issue, and that's despite one of the worst flu seasons we'd ever seen with tens of thousands of people who died, the funding really didn't change. So if you have the same amount of money, even with enhanced challenges, you can only do so much. Another big one, especially in the public health sphere, is workforce. The local health departments themselves have lost almost a quarter of their workforce in the decades since the recession, and those jobs have not necessarily come back. Take that and think about immunizations. You need to have a skilled professional who's there to be able to administer the vaccine, someone who's able to answer questions to help people talk through these things and sometimes some tricky parts of their lives to talk about what's best for them medically. When you have those questions, you need time and you need the people to do it. So workforce is huge. Messaging and confidence have become a really big issue recently. The measles outbreak is a perfect example of we thought that everyone was on the same page and that we were kind of trucking along when it came to high levels of immunization and really Misinformation has led to some real pockets of under immunization, and this year we saw we almost lost our nation's measles elimination status because of those pockets of under vaccination, let alone the pain and suffering and high, high, high healthcare costs that were associated with that outbreak. The immunization information systems, IAS, and that's really huge. That's the how we can really move to the next generation of being able to know who's been vaccinated, understand, making sure people aren't missing vaccines that they need, but also not getting vaccinated twice, maybe, when they already had what they needed. Being able to help you as you move, if I move from New Jersey to Arizona, helping my immunization records come with me and having those states be able to talk to each other. If you're in the military and you get discharged and you're going into the VA and then you're also seeing private health providers, making sure that those systems can talk to each other. That immunization information system is so critical for that. It also will help us realize, okay, we need to do more in this corner of the county or this corner of the state because something's going on here and folks here are at risk because the rates aren't high enough. Let's go work on our vaccine programs there. And then finally, those access issues. Out-of-pocket costs, folks who are underinsured, far away from healthcare providers, and then perceived barriers where folks don't feel like they can talk to a healthcare provider about what they need. So lots of policy issues to address. As we start to wrap up, and this question is for both of you, 
What are steps policymakers can take to help support immunization across the lifespan? Abby, we can start off with you. One thing we haven't talked too much about, but I think is really important, is the idea of quality measures. There's an adult composite measure for vaccines, and it can really, again, be a tool that providers, if they use it, it can help drive those important conversations about making sure the folks coming in are getting vaccinated. So looking to our policymakers to help adopt those as a process. Another area we didn't talk too much about is that there's a number of different provider barriers to offering immunization. So we can reduce those barriers through policy, make sure that we're providing adequate reimbursement to our providers who are doing this work, especially when we're asking them to take time out of these very limited conversations that they're having to have this important conversation. We want to make sure that they're getting reimbursed for that. In education, I think we stress education around adult immunization and immunization across the lifespan as a necessary piece to really make sure that the policy overall is being conveyed of how important this is. I think Abby really touched on all sorts of areas that really can be improved upon. Just one other area to kind of talk about is we've done some great investments in the research side of things. There's clearly more to be done in that space as well, but also that translation. So once things are kind of through the research phase, how are we getting them into providers' offices and into communities quickly? That translation is also really important so that we can really take advantage of the new innovations quickly once they are approved for use. Thank you to both of you for providing such valuable information to our listeners. Now, I'd like to be able to give you both some time for closing statements in case there was something we didn't touch on during our question and answer back and forth. Abby, if you'd like to get started. Sure. Well, thanks so much for allowing me to be a part of this on behalf of the Adult Vaccine Access Coalition. It was really wonderful. As you can tell, we love talking about vaccines. So um, I would just recommend that everybody go out there, talk to your provider, and get vaccinated. If you'd like more information about the work that AVAC is doing, you can visit our website at adultvaccinesnow.org. Adrian, any final thoughts? I also want to say thank you for including us in this. I know that sometimes the work of local public health departments is kind of like, we know they're there, but don't really know what's going on. So I know that on behalf of them, we are happy to work with anyone if they have any questions about getting in touch with their local health departments so they can really know what's going on in their communities. And thank you for raising this really, really important topic. Well, thank you again to both of you. It's been a real pleasure. Vaccination can mean the difference between life and death. On average, 50,000 U.S. adults die from vaccine-preventable diseases each year, and millions more suffer from illnesses that are entirely preventable through vaccination. The CDC recommends vaccinations for adults based on age, health conditions, prior history, and other factors. That's why it's important to talk to your healthcare provider about vaccinations today. I'd like to thank our guests once again for joining us on the latest Women in Government podcast. And I'd also like to say thank you to all of our listeners for taking the time to learn more about this important policy topic. Please don't forget to subscribe to, like, or share our podcast. And you can also email us by visiting womeningovernment.org. You've been listening to the Women in Government podcast, a resource made available for those interested in discussing important issues and policies of the day. For more information, please visit our website at womeningovernment.org.